Canadians care about what's happening in the world. And in just 10 minutes, World Report can help you stay on top of it all. Join me, Marcia Young. And me, John Northcott, to get caught up on what was breaking when you went to bed and the stories that still matter in the morning. Our CBC News reporters will tell you about the people trying to make change. The political movements catching fire. And the cultural moments going viral. Find World Report wherever you get your podcasts. Start your day with us. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. A couple of weeks ago, we answered your questions about how children can return to school safely. But there's another return looming for many of you. Like it or not, getting back to work. Many employees continue to work from home during the pandemic, but it's not always an option. Some workers in the retail and service industries are back in the workplace. And in some industries, factory workers have hardly been off and healthcare people like me have never stopped working. As more and more people return to the workplace, the questions are piling up. How many people can ride an elevator at one time? Should I care about the HVAC system? Is my job risky enough that I need PPE? So today on The Dose, we're asking the question, how can I safely return to work during the pandemic? Hello. Hi, is that Lenora Saxinger? It is Lenora Saxinger. How are you? Joining me once again is Dr. Lenora Saxinger. She's an infectious diseases specialist and associate professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. We love her because she's great at answering practical questions. Lenora, welcome back to The Dose. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Let's talk first about jobs in general. Are there any jobs that just by nature of the work, whether it's the work you're doing or the fact that you're with a lot of other people that put you at higher risk for contracting COVID-19? Yes, there certainly are some jobs that are higher risk. And the best data I've seen on this actually comes from Sweden, which I think people are familiar with the fact that they didn't have a full lockdown, but they also have really good national data sets. And so it's kind of a natural history experiment about what happens with no lockdown because everyone was going to work, but they did take precautions. There was a lot of, you know, I think social responsibility to distance. And so there was attempts to to minimize the impact of COVID that way. Their data is really interesting. Of course, it's in a Swedish public health report. So I had to rely on Google Translate to read it, which is sometimes a bit funny, but worked pretty well. And some professions that you would expect to be potentially higher risk and are of great concern right now uh, didn't seem to have much more risk than the general population at all. So, for example, top of mind teachers going back to work in the fall had essentially identical risk to the average community-based person. Their relative risk was basically 0.7 to 1.1, depending on what group they were in. Um, And that's kind of reassuring. Um, But on the other hand, taxi drivers, if I'm remembering collectively, Uh, correctly had a relative risk that was over four times higher than average risk. Um, And very specifically, pizza makers had higher risk. And I'm not sure if there's something different about restaurants in Sweden um, or if there's a lot of pizza places because that was a line item. But clearly people who have public facing jobs in certain settings might be at higher risk. People who work in a meatpacking plant uh, are not facing the public. Um, so, So there's some other factor there, isn't there? Oh, yeah. I guess uh, the number of people you see should include your coworkers. That's a really good point. And the circumstances in meatpacking plants are, I mean, there's a line, so they have to be close together. But there's also a lot of air movement. 
um, because I think they're blowing chilled air through the space. And so HVAC uh, heating and cooling systems are, and ventilation systems are also kind of important to think about. So, and, and we're not used to thinking about those things necessarily beyond my office is too hot or my office is too cold. But um, I'll give you another example that's kind of like the meatpacking one. There was an outbreak in a in a call center, so it was like a a bunch of those office cubicles. Yeah. And um, one side of the building had quite a lot of cases, but the other side did not. And there was some thought that maybe the direction of airflow and the fact that the original infected person might have had a lot of virus around while they were at work and might have spread either via the airflow on that side or maybe via some shared surfaces on that side, whereas the other side of the office was quite spared. So, so the fix in a, in a situation like that to actually be thinking in, in advance, how many people am I going to have in this workspace? I'm the employer and I want to make sure that they're all physically distant from one another. Yeah. So you have to look at how many people and how much space between them. And it's not a bad idea to talk to the building maintenance people too, because, you know, you, you look at airflow and some of the things that look like they're important in a, in a building environment is the number of air exchanges per hour. And with pretty much all of these infections, more air exchanges is better. Um, and making sure that you're bringing in outside air, as much outside air as possible. And if it's a building where you can open windows, which isn't always the case, an open window is fantastic. Um, and in the winter, another one would be increasing humidity. Um, that usually helps reduce respiratory virus risk. We don't know how much they reduce the risk, but it seems worth a shot for sure. Um, and then the other thing the employer should do is look at making sure it's easy to wash your hands a lot, because that's a huge one for reducing risk. It's very significant. A lot of people, they're going to be returning to work uh, dependent on public transit. Certainly in Edmonton, where you live, in Toronto, where I live, that's the case. From the standpoint of COVID-19, how risky is public transit these days? That's an interesting question because it's kind of hard to answer. The data we have um, are actually surprisingly reassuring in the main. So what do we know? Um, buses. I saw one super spreader event um, reported on a bus. Um, there was, it was actually interesting because there's two buses that went to the same event. It was some sort of religious event. And on one of the buses, there's someone who got symptoms that night. So they were just starting to get sick and they were not yet having symptoms when they were on the bus. And the relative risk of the people on that bus instead of the other bus after they'd all been at the same event was like, I think 11 times higher of wow. getting infection. So you definitely can have spread on a bus, but this was a fancy bus that had like air conditioning and a bathroom and stuff. And so I think that those conditions are probably worse than a air leakier old bus with windows, um, if that makes sense. Because the closed circumstance and the circulating air to me make it almost more like a meatpacking plant situation. There's some really big contact tracing studies um, in places where they would actually round up all the contacts and then put them in a quarantine hospital for 14 days and keep testing them. So it's actually pretty strong data. In one of those, the risk from public transport was something like 0.1% of contacts got infected versus around 10% for household contacts. So it probably depends on how close you are and how long you're on the transit system. Most places that have reopened their transit systems have done so with like a kind of cap on the number of passengers so it's not overcrowded and having people enter at the back of the bus to minimize the the risk to the driver and hand sanitizer and stuff like that. And so those measures, if they're something that can be implemented, makes sense to me. Is carpooling uh, to work a better or worse option than public transit? 
Ooh, good one. Um, my answer almost always starts with depends. To me, if you are carpooling with someone that you are in basically a work network with already, that seems like it's probably reasonable with the precautions we talked about. If you're carpooling with someone else that you're not usually networking with, either in your home environment or work environment, that carpooling might be a point of contact between two networks. Uh. And I don't think that that's the best idea. You yourself were about to become uh, symptomatic and were able to transmit infection to others. Then you just kind of spread it to a whole nother group. Um, okay, you arrive at work. We've absorbed the message to practice physical distancing. High-rise offices have elevators. How risky is it to use elevators as we return to work? Yeah, elevators are interesting because they they seem so enclosed. You can only really distance in an elevator if there's two or three of you, really. Um, Having said that, it's usually a short ride unless your building is really, really tall or if you stop on every single floor. So it's a short exposure. There's kind of like a pro and con there. Um, if, if you can take the stairs, I would imagine often they would be um, safer because it's a larger airspace unless everyone's huffing and puffing and coughing up a lung because they're out of shape and they're all on the stairs at the same time, in which case that might not be as good. That might be um, a very high risk area, especially if you're yeah. simultaneously walking up 10 flights of stairs like together with other people who aren't in you're your like bubble. You're like all trudging. Yeah, I, I, exactly. So there's also, of course, the buttons. People worry about elevator buttons. I would hand sanitize, wear a mask, avoid a crowded elevator if possible. Yeah, because my next question would be, what if someone sneezes uh, on the elevator? Which you know, oh it's boy, an involuntary are they going to <laughs> <laughs> You will be shunned. <laughs> Seriously, yeah, it can happen the- because it's an involuntary thing. Exactly. And I mean, people still have allergies. This is a terrible phase for people with allergies because you feel really bad about any kind of a sniff or a cough or a sneeze. Uh, I do think that that's really the main value to masks is kind of a source control. So it catches those big droplets before they go flying into the air. Um, While we're talking about masks, um, let's assume for a moment that your job is not meeting the public. Should you wear a mask? To me, it really does depend on the environment you're in. For example, sitting in your own office and occasionally people might come up to your door. I think that wearing a mask doesn't make sense. I mean, having a mask break during the day is nice. And so if you are able to vary between individual work and work where you're in contact with others, individual work time, if you're more than two meters away, it's fair to not wear a mask. If you're going to be entering kind of a more shared airspace, um, having a mask on would be the right fallback position. Uh, You've already started to talk about uh, common areas. People don't just go to their cubicles and go home. They congregate. Uh, They, you know, workplaces are all about social interaction, or at least they were before COVID. Uh, You know, walks to get coffee, uh, going to lunchrooms, meeting rooms. Um, How risky are those face-to-face chats? You know, to be honest, in the healthcare setting, those are looking to be the riskiest things that people do in the workplace because they're often much better in the more formal situations about remembering all those new habits. But the water cooler type conversation, the lunchroom type conversation is where it just feels so familiar and such a relief not to be in lockdown that people start to lose their good habits. And so in a lot of healthcare um, transmission incidents, it wasn't healthcare workers working with patients, but healthcare workers interacting 
testing in break rooms where we've been seeing the majority of our infections. And so I think I would extend that into the workplace and say the water cooler conversations, the lunchroom, the microwave coffee pod lineups, those are the places where you actually have to make a real effort to build the new habit. And if you have to have a meeting uh, where everybody is physically present in the room, they should practice good physical distancing, which means the, the, the desks or the, the chairs should be at least two meters apart. And you shouldn't have choke points where people are have to congregate to get in and out of a door, like in and out of a room. They have to have a staggered way of getting in and out. And you need to wipe down surfaces. Have I got it all right? Yeah, that sounds good. I mean, I know it sounds silly, but you know those markers on the floor that you see in a lot of places? Yep. They're a really good visual cue about what a distance means. Because I think people, it's sometimes hard to judge. And it just kind of jars you out of your usual pattern to remember that the the personal space that we're used to observing is now expanded. Oh, and I probably also probably tend to avoid water fountains seems like the right thing to do, especially because people can have their own personal water supply. In fact, uh, Lenora, that, that's, that's in the, the federal uh, guidelines on returning to the office. So, so oh, that's good. Ba- bathrooms. Bathrooms are going to be a really high-risk place, aren't they? So, so what are the ins and outs of, of common bathrooms in the workplace? One of the challenges, I think, is that um, bathrooms, you know, the, the distancing is set by the plumbing. Trying to avoid overcrowding remains important. And so this is where, if it's possible to prop the door open and put marks on the floor, if someone is waiting for the bathroom, it's much easier to see rather than walking in and then walking back out. If it's a high volume kind of bathroom, you know, have the marks go down the hall so that you don't have too many people in at once. You might want to use only every other plumbing unit. Now, one one nice thing about bathrooms is people don't tend to spend that long a time in them. And so a bathroom-based contact um, of less than 15 minutes would still tend to be considered low risk. And so that's a bit reassuring. You know, the ideal for bathrooms would be as no touch as possible for faucets yes. and, so, for, and for paper towel dispensers and or, 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 or hand dryers. Yeah, I don't like hand dryers because they blow stuff around so much ah. myself. Um, the nice touches that are something that you can add, even if your bathroom is kind of older and doesn't have the fancy stuff, is if you have it set up so the door is propped open so you don't have to handle the handle. Um, and if you can't prop the door open, if you have a waste paper basket outside the door, so after you wash your hands, you keep your paper towel in your hand, you open the door, you come out, you throw your paper towel in the bin, and then maybe having a hand sanitizing station also outside outside the door just for that extra little hand refresher. We'll be right back. Canadians care about what's happening in the world. And in just 10 minutes, World Report can help you stay on top of it all. Join me, Marcia Young. And me, John Northcott, to get caught up on what was breaking when you went to bed and the stories that still matter in the morning. Our CBC News reporters will tell you about the people trying to make change. The political movements catching fire. And the cultural moments going viral. Find World Report wherever you get your podcasts. Start your day with us. You're listening to The Dose. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. This week, how can I safely return to work during the pandemic? My guest is Dr. Lenora Saxinger. She's an infectious diseases specialist and associate professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. 
We uh, got a few questions from people who are returning to work in the education system. So here's one from a teacher who says, I will have multiple classes of contacts at school. Um, I don't believe one meter distancing will be possible, let alone two meters. Would it be beneficial for me to include an apron or a smock as part of my PPE that I removed before entering my home? What are some of the other things that I can do to mitigate the fact that distancing may not always be possible? Yeah, I think in this setting where you can't distance a good quality mask and considering eye protection, like a face shield, would be important for your personal protection. That's actually been a real concern for health workers, of course, too. I mean, during the dark times when there was a lot of uncertainty and fear, people were like stripping in the garage and, you know, hosing off outside before going into their home. That's probably not necessary. Um, We've been unable to find any case reports where, you know, an individual's clothing was thought to be the source of transmission and hand washing before you enter your home would be really important. Um, I wipe down high touch surfaces of my personal items. So my, my phone um, and my pager and, you know, the handle of my bag um, before I enter the house. I don't think changing clothes is necessarily an evidence-based thing. And then the final thing is if you're in a public facing job and you start developing any symptoms, isolating yourself from your family within your own home is incredibly protective. So avoiding shared airspace with your family, actually masking around your family while you're waiting for your test results. In some studies that reduces household transmission in one study actually to zero compared to people who didn't do those measures within the home where the household transmission rate was about 15%. So I don't think people should feel like they're sources of contagion for their family, basically. You have brought us very nicely on to the next subject that I was going to ask you about, which is what should be done to screen and monitor the health of workers who are now returning from their work from home period. Now they're working back in the physical office. Canadians are a little bit too used to kind of working through nuisance symptoms and essentially ignoring them until they're very sick. And that is no longer okay. Um, And so being very mindful of the state of your health, particularly, you know, fatigue, feverishness, um, aches, runny nose, sore throat. Any of those um, are deal breakers. You don't go to work. Or if you have, exactly. the very least, if you do show up at work, there should be somebody at the front door who's saying, no, you can't come in today. Yes. And I think um, there, there Historically, there's been a lot of pressure for people not to basically be absent for minimal symptoms because it, it is inconvenient. But on the other hand, the inconvenience of having to shut down your whole office is also very uh, considerable and the risk to others is considerable. So that's that's a massive, massive change that we're going to have to get used to. Now, two things about that that are interesting. One is even if people do have those symptoms, at least in, in most settings, in our setting, even Alberta, where we're having high case rates, that 97, 97% of the people presenting with symptoms do not have COVID. So there's still other reasons for a lot of those symptoms. But the safest thing to do is to, to stay home um, and get tested. And this is actually another habit. In addition to paying attention to your symptoms, paying attention to your contacts and your movements. I can't remember, you know, who I spoke with <laughs> yesterday most of the time. But then new way of thinking should include kind of keeping a mental tally of where you've been and who you've talked to because if you develop symptoms and you get tested that's immensely useful to be able to find the people you've been in contact with um, and make sure that they know that they should be monitoring themselves and getting tested and that they might need to be quarantined depending on the type of contact. The federal guidelines on return to work uh, say that if a worker has, or a manager for that matter, has a, uh, a temperature of 38 degrees or higher, they need to stay away from work. So 
should uh, temperatures be measured every morning or every 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 shift when a when a worker enters the uh, the workspace? I think that's a good rule, but the role of measuring temperature is a little uncertain because in a way it, it almost becomes kind of prevention theater because in, in places where they've done like the infrared scanning or in healthcare systems where there's been temperature screening for healthcare workers, it doesn't appear to enhance the pickup rate beyond asking people about their symptoms or making people review their symptoms, if that makes sense. Um, having said that, it does have a formality to it that might make people more mindful um, about about their symptoms. And so if you do have a temperature, um, of course, that's very significant. But in a lot of studies, patients even admitted to hospital, we never found a fever um, and they're COVID positive, but they might give a history of having felt feverish. So it's it's easy to miss a fever is one of the problems. Um, we've been hearing a lot in the news lately about rapid testing kits, rapid test kits for COVID-19. Some companies are trying these. Uh, how effective might they be at detecting workers more quickly who have COVID-19? It's an interesting concept, and I think um, I think we'll see some more work in that regard. But the, So the tests that we're talking about tend to not be highly sensitive. So a negative test does not mean that you are for sure not infected and does not mean that you for sure cannot transmit. But in general, a positive test, if it's a good quality assay, because they do vary, some of them are pretty crummy, honestly. But if it's a decent quality test and it's positive, that would be, um, it would suggest that that person might be a higher transmission risk because there's, there's more virus around to be detected by this less sensitive assay. And so some people think that doing that kind of test very frequently would reduce the risk of that kind of high spreading event. Um, Because you might be catching those people who are getting a high viral load just before they start getting sick and prevent that kind of thing from happening. On a population basis, that seems very um, attractive. And I think it should be evaluated to see if it works the way that it seems like it should work. On an individual basis, I think the only risk is that if people have a negative rapid test, that does not necessarily mean that you should, you know, go visit grandma without precautions. I mean, because a negative test is not uh, fully reassuring. It's just not as sensitive a test. What have we learned from other jurisdictions, other countries that are that are further ahead of us uh, when it comes to a return to the workplace? You know, I think ultimately, when you look at what's been going on in other countries, there's this kind of after after the epidemic peak, there's uh, a slow kind of toe dipping approach to getting back towards normal and some testing of boundaries of what's okay and not okay. Uh, I think that one thing that becomes clear is that although people start to gratefully embrace what feels to be normal, that the virus has not gone away, that most people are still susceptible. And if you give it an inch, it'll take a mile and it'll flare up again. And so all these extra precautions that we're taking end up, they might not seem that useful because nothing is happening, but that means that they're probably useful. And so it's a, it's a very different kind of vigilance that's required during the boring phase now um, when all the panic has faded. And we might end up having to adjust our rules as we see what works and doesn't work in our individual settings. And in community with higher transmission, those extra precautions really have to be observed, like those 
basics have to be observed perfectly. And those those things that seem so simple and so forgettable turn out to be the thing that can turn the tide and prevent us from running into trouble again with, you know, people getting very sick and the healthcare system getting stretched. So it's like a, a long, boring fight for our lives at this point. And um, those habits and making them sustainable and making them the easiest thing to do becomes incredibly important. Keep reminding ourselves that it's well worth the effort because, you know, you, we'll look back in retrospect and, and be a lot happier that, that we didn't let the genie out of the bottle. Exactly. Exactly. Dr. Lenora Saxinger, thanks once again for answering a lot of practical questions, in this case about getting back to work during the pandemic. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that was marvelous. You were great as usual. Well, thank you very much. It's actually um, it's actually kind of fun because you know what? Anytime I talk to people, it helps me think about things differently and I get yeah. ideas. And so yeah. it's really it's really beneficial. I appreciate the dialogue very much. Yeah. And uh, so uh, we'll it'll be on next week and we'll let you know so that you can you can tweet it and uh, I'm and there'll be an article that will come out on the online as well. So thanks again. This, this is so it's so generous of you to spend this time. My pleasure. And thanks for all your good work. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. Okay. Bye bye. Bye now. Dr. Lenora Saxinger is an infectious diseases specialist and associate professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Now for some smart advice about leaving your home and returning to work at the office or the factory. You need to follow the rules and recommendations set by your municipality and province. Since those rules vary across Canada, let's stick to the guiding principles. Your employer's return to work plan should permit you to work from home whenever possible. Those who return to the office or factory need to be checked every day for fever and other symptoms of COVID-19 and be sent for testing should they fail screening at the front door. Employers must guarantee physical distancing. And when that's not possible, they should reduce the number of people at work at a time through extended work hours as well as staggered entry and exit times. They need to encourage employees to wash their hands frequently and to cough or sneeze into a tissue or elbow. They need to clean surfaces frequently and provide adequate supplies of alcohol rub and wipes. Employees who meet the public should wear a mask. If that's a frequent part of the job, then the employer should also install a clear plastic barrier. In addition, I think it's prudent that all employees wear a mask even if they don't meet the public as part of their job. Large in-person meetings need to be banned. Go virtual instead. Sad to say it, but informal lunchroom gatherings should also be discouraged because that's often where and when COVID-19 spreads. And as for the water cooler, I'd take a thermos full of cold water to work instead. Judging by the response we've gotten by email and social media, you've enjoyed hearing the dose this summer. Next week, White Coat Black Art returns with an award-winning show from last season, and we'll be having new episodes starting after Labor Day. This season, we'll be looking at all the ways COVID-19 has changed the healthcare system. As for the dose, we're taking a short break, but we'll be back in your podcast feed beginning September 17th. So if you don't want to miss an episode, subscribe to The Dose on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're not sure how to subscribe, we have a great tutorial on our website at cbc.ca slash whitecoat. 
If you have questions about COVID-19 or anything to do with your health, email the dose at cbc.ca or tweet me at nightshiftmd or at cbcwhitecoat using the hashtag thedosecbc. This edition of The Dose was produced by Donna Dingwall and me with help from Sajada Berry and Fabiola Carletti. Our online writer is Brandy Wikely. Technical operations were by Julia Whitman. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.